the tiny Grove Street apartment that she and Beck share. She lets them in late, long after she has tucked her daughter into the cushiony pink softness of her comforter. Although some nights Beck is with her father, and the room sits empty. She makes the men tiptoe past the closed door of Beck's bedroom, and leave before sunrise. But Beck has never been the kind of child to come searching for her in the night. She pours wine, she lights candles in her dark room. Sometimes she and her guests talk quietly for hours. On those nights, she fills and refills her wine glass until she can talk freely, but remember little. She tells lie after lie when he asks her questions. Better, so much better, when things don't get too personal. Sometimes there is no talking at all. Those nights are easier. On those nights, she drinks very little. She doesn't need any help taking the comfort her body craves. The men aren't all the same, but they might as well be. When the season is past, she can hardly distinguish one experience from another. She makes it a point not to. Certain things she shouldn't have. The soft pleasure of a dinner by candlelight. Long phone conversations. Fingers intertwined with her own. If there was music, she can't recall the songs. But while it's happening, he, whomever he happens to be, puts his hands on her and becomes more than just a man she's brought home. He becomes a part of her. And for those moments, she loves him. For those moments, she can pretend that she isn't alone in that way. On those nights, she falls asleep with arms wrapped tightly around her, skin pressed against naked skin, the tiniest beads of sweat on her inner thighs. She doesn't dream about a field, or a bridge, or a dead girl. She doesn't dream at all. She always moves away from him in her sleep, before the sun comes up. And then he is gone, and candle wax has formed hard, dark rivers on her nightstand. It's her own twisted survival tactic, and it is enough. Chapter One New York City, 2008 But I didn't do it. I didn't kill her, Julie whispers. She was my friend. I loved her. Please, please believe me. Usually, she wants to be pulled into the charade, the dazzling drama of the stage. She was born for it, made to tell stories that aren't her own. It's all she's ever needed, isn't it? This spotlight, a bit of recognition. But this ridiculous scene about friendship and betrayal, she wants no part of this. It's almost over, though, and there is no way out of it anyway short of admitting in front of the entire class that this silly soap opera-style plot, written by the youngest person in the group, has affected her in such a visceral way. So, she plasters an expression of false innocence on her face and tries to focus on the man in front of her. She doesn't know him, can't even think of his first name. In the scene, he is her lover, but in reality, he can't hold her attention. He is taller than she is, and she has to look up to see his face. But she keeps looking over his shoulder instead, 
her eyes shifting up to the ceiling, where exposed pipes slither, snake-like across the metal ceiling of the converted warehouse. It's always so cold in here, while those pipes hang idle, strange adornments. Classical music plays softly in the background, but it seems very far away. Julie's body resists everything about playing this role, so she has to force her behavior. The fast, frantic rhythm of her breathing, hands ringing together in a nervous dance. She is supposed to be nervous, because her character is, after all, guilty. She tries, fails, to keep the images from springing to her mind. A forest at night, fireflies blinking in the dark, a young girl with golden hair, and a big secret. And then it isn't so difficult to connect with the role.